This episode of The Curbsiders is available for CME and mock credit through our partnership with the American College of Physicians. ACP members can go to acponline.org forward slash curbsiders and claim their free CME and mock credit. Thank you and enjoy the show. My middle name is Phoebe. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) I forgot to say. You want to do it again? Yeah, no, no, that no, that stays time. just like that. I would not no. change the thing. <laughs> yeah, I think it was better that way, actually. Yeah, absolutely. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know if you're Hey, Paul. <laughs> oh, God. How you doing? I hate this so much. I'm great, thanks. <laughs> How are you, Matt? Yeah, let's just pre- let's let's act natural. Yep, Everything's people. fine. We're doing great. Just two friends talking. What else could be more natural than this? No one can hear us. Stuart's not. <laughs> Stuart's not here. Nope. Just in media res, the audience is with us. Like you're holding a whole conversation. <laughs> That's right. And Paul, this is the Curbsiders. This is a hotcakes episode. We have a lot of articles tonight. Uh, we talked about, what do we talk about? Vaping, CRP, procalcitonin, vaccinations. Then our guest had some great articles, uh, imposter syndrome, vacationing. Vacationing, Paul, did we ever talk about that on Hotcakes before? I, I don't think we have. I feel like it's it's well suited to our rating system because it's about as scientifically rigorous, but great. <laughs> so, Paul, uh, we have with us two wonderful co-hosts. Uh, before that, did you want to tell them like the gist of like what we do on this show? I know it's it's not our typical show, but I mean, all the ingredients are there. We still are the internal medicine podcast. We still have expert interviews, and we're still bringing you clinical pearls. So I feel I feel pretty okay about it. And we also talk a lot at the beginning of this one. <laughs> so it was fifteen so. minutes, fifteen yeah. minutes of pure gold. It's, I mean, it's all great. It'll make you a better person. But maybe this time around, we could forgive you a little bit if you skip past it. I'm not saying to skip past it. I'm just saying it's a lot, guys. But we, we are we are fantastic, and you'd be luckier to hear it. If so, let's leave it at that. So today is one of our hot cakes episodes where we look at recent articles and um, things in the news that we want to bring up to your attention. And my fantastic super producer. Sarah Phoebe Roberts is joining us today for the for really the first time on air. Is that right, Sarah? Um, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think I've popped in here and there in other episodes, but this is the first time with like an actual legitimate microphone. <laughs> That's true. And I, I think after listening to you talk, I realize what a grave mistake we made in not bringing you on. <laughs> so I apologize <laughs> profusely for that. Oh, you're too kind. <laughs> And so today we are actually joined by an, another excellent guest. We are delighted to have uh, Dr. Kimberly Manning with us. Uh, Dr. Manning joined the faculty at Emory University School of Medicine in 2001 after completing her residency in a combined internal medicine pediatrics uh, residency program. She currently has an academic appointment as the associate professor in the Department of Medicine and associate vice chair of diversity, equity, and inclusion for the Department of Medicine. As a passionate clinician educator and self-described generalist hospitalist, she divides her professional time between teaching preclinical medical students, training medical residents, and patient care, primarily at Grady Memorial Hospital. Dr. Manning additionally serves as residency program director for the transitional year of her residency program. Dr. Manning has a strong passion for building and strengthening diverse clinical learning environments. She led the Emory University School of Medicine's Task Force on Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and has been a staunch advocate and mentor for underrepresented minorities in medicine. In her role as Associate Vice Chair of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the Department of Medicine, she has been a key leader in the development of their strategic plan for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and an enthusiastic recruiter for the Internal Medicine Residency Program. Dr. Manning's work has been published in such prestigious journals as the Annals of Internal Medicine, Academic Medicine, and the Journal of the American Medical Association. She is an avid writer, and she authors a blog, Reflections of a Grady Doctor, that was named in 2010 by O, the Oprah Magazine, as one of the four top medical blogs you should read. She is a regular content contributor to the American College of Physicians, internist blog, and is a writer for their monthly companion publication. And without too much further ado, we are happy to present this conversation with Dr. Manning. So we have Dr. Manning with us today. How amazing is that? 
How are you doing, Dr. Manning? I'm doing awesome. And Chris, this is the one thing we actually forgot to do pre-recording. Can we can we call you by your first name? We always call our guests by their first name. So what yes. what do you, what should we call you? I was going to ask you that. It felt so formal. <laughs> um, Kimberly is fine. Okay, Kimberly. Thank you. So from now on, you will be known as Kimberly on this podcast. <laughs> Kimberly. <laughs> that works. So Kimberly, you know, like our with our normal episodes, well, this is a slightly different episode because it's one of our hotcakes, but because we have a very special guest with us today, we usually start off with some, you know, some get to know you questions. Well, Kimberly, do you mind giving us like a one-liner of like who you are? It doesn't necessarily have to be medical related, but just to help our guests get to know you. Okay. Um, let's see. My one-liner is I am a habitual reflector. I think about everything. Then I think about what I thought about. Then I think about what you thought about what I thought about. And then I think about that too. Um, I'm a general internist slash hospitalist in Atlanta, Georgia, working my dream job at my dream hospital. And uh, I teach medical students, and I am a residency program director for transitional year and newly an associate vice chair for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And a mom and a wife, and I have an awesome dog. <laughs> What's your dog's name? My dog's name is Willow Pepper Manning. Excellent. <laughs> Does anyone have any introductory questions for her? Well, I, I think some of us are going to be giving picks of the week. So I would like to know where, did, where did you learn about this reflection? Was it from a book? Is there any, any resource or any reason that made you such a reflective person? Um, yeah. So I, when I was, uh, in about, about my second year on faculty, I was asked to join a faculty development group that was focused on, um, reflection and narrative medicine. And um, anybody who is new on a faculty position knows that if something is going to protect a half day or a day out of your schedule, I was like, okay, I'll do it. Um, but what ended up happening is we spent a lot of time writing and talking about what we were seeing in the hospital. And um, I really think from that experience, uh, I started to appreciate the, you know, the extraordinary things about ordinary things. Um, and so I found myself really appreciating the tiny moments in the hospital and with learners. And after a while, um, I used to come home and unpack all of this with my husband, who is a wonderful soul, but who was really tired of hearing all my stories. And he's like, you know what, you should like, write a blog or something. <laughs> <laughs> so my blog is actually 10 years old this this month, and I started blogging um, in 2009, really writing about um, the beautiful aspects of working in a safety net hospital, um, like the one I, where I work um, at Grady. And so, um, yeah, so I think just that, that building that muscle of writing and looking at stuff and noticing things, I mean, I think... I can probably write 1,500 words on just walking across the street from my office to the hospital. <laughs> um, so I think it just becomes a habit. So can I'm, you give the name of your blog so people can can look it up? Yeah, it's called Reflections of a Grady Doctor. Um, the website is gradydoctor.com. Now, I've, I've got a follow-up question to that. So I've actually been stooping on your blog and reading that for a little while now. But I've all, I got to know you first on Twitter. And, I was, yeah. and you, you have some such excellent tweets that um, get lots of responses and, and bring lots of emotion from a lot of um, people in medicine. And I was just wondering, what is, how is your approach different when you're composing your tweets versus some of the things that you put on your blog? Yeah, so I will say that all of you guys really got me excited about Twitter. I joined Twitter in 2010. It took me a while to really appreciate what it could do. But when I started looking at uh, some of Tony Bruce threads and all these different things, I thought, well, maybe you could thread out some narrative medicine. And usually what I do is um, I think about um, the lesson or whatever the, the point is, or what is the what, if you will. And I open a Word document and um, write each of the tweets one at a time and do the word count and all that good number count and character count. Um, try not to go over 15, I think 
tired when I read uh, threads that last <laughs> a little too long and um, kind of go from there. But it's been a really neat um, muscle to work. I, you know, thinking in aliquots, telling a story um, feels very different than just sitting down and typing out a narrative. Um, so it's been fun and I feel like it, it's put me in a new zone of development. I, I, I've been appreciative that it's somewhat worked. What do your progress notes look like? <laughs> 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 this 42-year-old flower director. <laughs> no, um, you know, my, my progress notes are to the point. Um, I, I have to say, though I, though I do love narrative medicine, um, I like to know what's going on and I don't like a lot of noise. Um, and so, um, you know, when people are presenting patients to me or when they're writing in the chart, I'm quite particular about um, me being able to look at it and know what's going on without too much noise. So I like noise in my narrative medicine, but not in my everyday medicine. Um, I don't have any additional questions. I'm just very excited to hear your take on uh, this issue. And I think it connects really nicely to some of the other topics that we've discussed on the podcast. Um, and we could talk more about that when you get into the summary. But yeah, just excited to have you on the podcast. I will say that um, all day today, I've been having imposter syndrome about talking about imposter syndrome. <laughs> um, it's very meta. Meta, so. yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I guess that'll work. <laughs> Kimberly, awesome. do, you got, do you want to start off with the pick of the week? Anything that uh, that any of our listeners should should be checking out this last this week? Sure. Um, what I'll what I'll say is that I am absolutely um, just enamored with audiobooks. and um, you know, as a busy person who's trying to find ways to enhance my wellness. Um, I started listening to audiobooks, and there's many that I love, but um, probably the most sublime narration of a book that I've ever heard was one that I'd read before, and it is Sissy Spacek reading To Kill a Mockingbird. It is, it is, it is unbelievable. Um, I'd read the book probably three or four times um, as a kid and as a young person, but it is an entirely new experience. She breathes a life into Scout that Oh, I could listen to it over and over again. Honorable mention is Trevor Noah's Born a Crime. He Excellent. he's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Well, my my pick of the week sort of piggybacks similar to audiobooks. My my favorite uh, podcast that I listen to right now is Lavar Burton Reads, and he takes oh. it's he calls it Reading Rainbow for Adults, and he takes short stories, and he he. There, and they, you know, they they brought all sorts of genres from science fiction to just fiction to historical fiction to whatever, whatever he find that fancies him, and he reads them in his great Lavar Burton way, and it's got uh, just great like sound engineering and it's just fantastic. And you know, he he also goes on tour and they record those too. And when he's on tour, they they actually have like a local musician who also plays the soundtrack and other things as he's narrating and. They're just amazing, and it's basically one of my favorite podcasts right now. I mean, it sounds like something that was designed in a laboratory by a team of experts explicitly for you. Like, if we had to design something for Chris Chu, this is what they would come up with, if, unless he was talking about, like, old movie props, and then it would just be the trifecta. Any other picks of the week, guys? I, I wanted to recommend, so Aziz Ansari, I, I actually never heard of any of his stand-up before, but I really liked his television show, and I know he had this controversy last year. He actually addresses it directly in the beginning of his stand-up, but he's about the same age as me, and... I just felt the stuff that he he had like such a message in this show and the stuff that he talked about it just it was just so relevant to things I just I just really thought it was just really well done it was enjoyable to watch I watched it with my wife um whether or not you like the guy I, I think it's I think he has a really interesting take on things that are going on in the world right now especially with young people political being politically correct and things um and uh yeah so check it out he also has a an audiobook, I think, called Modern Love, which I've yes. listened to. It was pretty it's good. good. Yeah, yeah, he's funny. Malcolm Gladwell is my favorite audiobook person. That's like before Revisionist History was out, I had listened to like all his books on audiobook. He's just amazing. Like he's an amazing storyteller. Uh, I also have a, a comedy related pick of the week that's actually been around forever, but um, I just found out about it. So it's new to me. Um, it's called Garfield minus Garfield. Have oh, you guys yeah. heard of this? Okay, so everyone knows. About, okay, Paul, oh, no, no. I'm so not surprised that you know about this. 
<laughs> so the the premise is that it is the Garfield comics with the images of Garfield removed. So it's just the, the main character John John Arbuckle speaking to himself, um, and it's sort of a bit of an existential crisis type of humor. And uh, it's I find it very enjoyable. Um, it's not, you know, uh, kind of it's 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 a sort of dark humor, but I, I enjoy it. <laughs> Highly recommend. Paul, you got one? Yeah. So let, I actually, so you're exempt from answering this, but let me ask everyone else who's left. If I say one plus two plus two plus one, does that mean anything to you at all? No. Okay. So it's, I, I usually I leave the broad recommend, like I try to recommend things that are kind of niche and sort of outside the norm, just so you can all broaden your horizons and not recommend things that everyone knows are good already, like, like Wado, like um, <laughs> the love of a good Jump woman or, or puppy kisses or whatever. But I, I just assumed that the movie Clue, everyone was aware of. And I, apparently it's just something that was important to my childhood and not everybody else's. So I'm recommending the movie Clue. It's a 1985 movie that came out. It's written and directed by this guy, um, Jonathan Lynn. It's based on the board game. Yes, it's based on the board game. And it stars, it's like this all-star comedy cast. It is Tim Curry and my favorite performance of him, Madeline Kahn, Christopher Lloyd, Michael McKeon, Martin Mall. It is spectacular. They're all hilarious in it. And it's this murder mystery that takes place. Again, I said, like, it's based on the board game. And one of the novelties of it is that it has three different endings about the different ways of who could have committed what crime. And then finally, they tell you actually how it happened. And it is... One of the funniest, fastest-paced, bonkers movies I've ever seen in my entire life. And I feel like I, I just assumed everyone was aware of it, but apparently not. So I'm trying to remedy that now. So everyone should please go out and watch the 1985 movie Clue. Uh, so just, just to be clear, when it was in, when it was in theaters, it only, it only played with a single ending, and you didn't know which ending you would get. Right, right. It, was only, it came on video that it would show all the endings and then show what the quote-unquote real ending was, just FYI. There are like th- three movies where if I'm flipping through the channels and it's on, that I just stop and like, I guess this is a movie I'm watching now. And, and Clue is one of those movies. So go educate yourselves. And in case people have wondered what they stumbled into in the podcast because they forwarded 10 minutes, this is uh, pa- pa- this is this is the backdoor episode pilot for the first 10 minutes spinoff that Paul and I were going to do. So, Oh, yeah. yeah. Paul, I, I absolutely thought that you were recommending the movie Clueless, which uh, is slightly different. Also an excellent, um, absolutely, movie. Very big in my childhood. But, uh, you know, Clue sounds fun, too. All right. Now that we've gotten to know Kimberly, um, time to time for the my favorite part. Well, actually, they're all my favorite part of the episode. <laughs> We're going to do hot takes. So our first hot take, Paul has an article about vaping. Well, not even an article. And I, I just want to mention, I want to... I don't shout people out because that just sounds weird coming out of my mouth. But I'm going to mention that someone on Chris Wagner on Twitter um, tweeted basically as much as I love hotcakes, I really enjoyed Paul doling out the writing of one maple flavored vape pen. And then someone else noticed <laughs> now now that vapes are killing people, do you really do you still endorse um, do I still endorse the maple flavored vape pen writing? And I, I kind of don't. And basically what this is based on is. There have been increasing amount of case reports coming out that showing that actually vaping has resulted in pretty significant lung injury, in some cases resulting in requiring intubation, needing corticosteroids. There is a, a vague case of vaping, maybe associated with seizures, but that's kind of less exciting. But this idea of vaping-associated lung injury is becoming more and more prevalent to the extent that CDC are now urging clinicians to report possible cases of vaping-associated pulmonary illness to their state and local health departments. So it sounds like it started in Wisconsin. There are at least 15 cases reported, and you know, ranging all ages, if you're old enough to be vaping, then you're old enough to actually be one of the case reports. And it doesn't seem to matter, or at least there's not been a common thread as to what they've been vaping. And a lot of the, the people have reported that, yes, it was, in fact, marijuana products, but they're not, not consistently. So it seems like it's more the delivery mechanism than the actual substance that they're vaping that is actually landing these people in the ICU or in the hospital. So my takeaway is, rather than limping along with vape pens instead of smoking or using vape pens to entice children to smoke or... Um, using vape pens to try to quit smoking and then returning to smoking or using vape pens indefinitely, just don't vape because apparently in the short term, it's it's actually causing very real and legitimate harm. So I don't think we can recommend it with any kind of clear conscience at this point for any medical modality, at least. Yeah. These these weren't people with like under underlying lung disease. They were just, it could have been all comers. Did they, did they mention that? Uh, it doesn't get too deep into it, but I, I mean, the ages range from 16 to 53 years. So I have to assume that some of the patients were without any intrinsic lung disease before presenting. Okay. Any other comment? Do they, I think I'd heard something at some point about them actually injuring people's mouths and teeth through explosion. Had you ever heard this before with vaping? <laughs> oh my God. No. <laughs> there used to be a whole underground thing where people would, 
I don't know. There probably still is where people mod their vape fan pens so that it burns at higher uh, higher temperatures, so people can um, do all sorts of tricks with their with their vaping smoke and things like that. All of that sounds like a, a really good idea. It just all of that sounds fantastic. And I was able to find a few things on online about vaping pens exploding. So there's that as well, shattering a teen's jaw. Oh my god. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Okay, so don't if you are gonna vape, don't modify it. Come on, or let's just, just just don't vape. Let's just let's just put that out there. Please don't vape. No vape tricks. You look stupid. It may explode and blow your face off. It's just it's not it's not good. Please don't. Not even maple flavored. Matt, do you got you have a hot take you wanted to bring up today, right? Yeah, I, we've we've talked about this a couple times before. We talked about procalcitonin. There was there was this article way back. It was I, I believe it was a system, systematic review where they had looked at the ICU and maybe it could help you determine when you could take someone off antibiotics. But this most recent article that I saw, and and this include it was a systematic review and meta analysis. It was in um, it appeared in the ACP Internist Weekly, and the original article was by Kamat in Clinical Infectious Diseases 2019. And they they looked at procalcitonin. The most common cutoff used was like 0.4 micrograms per liter. And they, they found it wasn't really helpful. The sensitivity and specificity were like 55% and 75, uh, 6% respectively. And uh, it just didn't seem to be clinically helpful. They, they used about 12 trials in the meta-analysis, and about four of those were in ICU patients. One was patients with COPD exacerbation. Um, it just, it I haven't found it clinically helpful, and we've talked about it a couple times on the show before where we were, the, the last article we talked about it was in an emergency department where if they just trained providers like what was appropriate antibiotic use, what kind of symptoms might warrant antibiotics versus pro-cal, um, just giving better training to your staff was like had equal outcomes. So I'm going to pretty much stop using ProCal for now until I see some compelling evidence. And uh, the other article that kind of just goes right along with this, although it's more of a positive article, was using point of care CRP testing to see if patients with COPD exacerbation needed antibiotics uh, or not. It was an article by Butler. It appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2019. And it was from the UK. It was a. Uh, it was not industry funded. The industry donated the devices, but it was funded by like the NHS. And they basically just in primary care patients with an acute COPD exacerbation, they use like the classic, which what I'm told are called anthonacin criteria from Annals of Internal Medicine, 1987. Either increased dyspnea, increased sputum production, or increased sputum purulence, and uh, they use that versus this point-of-care CRP testing with various cutoffs, and they found that uh, about they could avoid antibiotics in about 20% of patients with no difference in outcomes. So one in five patients, you might be able to avoid antibiotics by using these various CRP cutoffs. And it was like the CRP cutoff was greater than 40, but you'd probably have to look what your lab is compared to what the what the values they used in this specific study. But I, I thought that was interesting. We don't have point-of-care CRP testing, but it seemed like a positive study. But well, like like ProCal, probably need to wait till more accrues to, before you start using this widely. So a good old definitely maybe. <laughs> the definitely maybe. But I'm interested in this stuff. It, it just seems like people want... It, it seems like people want a test that's just going to be like, this is bacterial, no, or this is viral, and they do or don't benefit from antibiotics. But... One of the great points in the procalcitonin article the author made was that, that like it's part of the reason it's hard to study the utility of procalcitonin is because even in clinical trials it's really hard to like figure out who actually has bacterial infection right. and who actually has viral infection. And that's what we're all trying to do. <laughs> all this is just the, the subtext here is just everyone screaming please someone give me something better than my clinical judgment I beg of you. Like that's <laughs> that's all this is. Exactly. Exactly. That's why I think that's why I find this so fascinating. And I think for right now, what it's telling us is that if you have decent clinical judgment, it's probably as good as, as some of these tests. Maybe, maybe CRP is going to bail us out on the COPD front, but more to come. <laughs> so nothing replaces residency where you can learn sick versus not sick right now. <laughs> yes. And and also, thank you for asking, Chris. So I give these articles uh, each uh, three hot <laughs> Three hot cakes each. Fantastic. Yeah. 
So I do. Ha I have one hot take of my own. I don't know if you guys saw this come out. Um, I think it came via probably New England Journal of Medicine, Journal Watch, or something like that. Yeah, Journal Watch in my email. And it was basically about the um, Prevnar or PCV13 vaccination. Have any guys heard about um, so the things that went around with this? I did hear, Chris, because you actually, uh, you bombed me with this uh <laughs> <laughs> and you were, and I think you sent it out on Twitter. So I, I was reading up on it. I, it was very interesting stuff. So as most people know, um, you know, back in 2014, um, they st uh, CDC started recommending the use of PCV13, otherwise known as Prevnar, in our patients over 65 in terms of part of the normal immunization schedule. Um, of course, you know, it's a great question that a lot of residents get because they don't know when they're supposed to give it compared to the other pneumonia shot. Uh, which mm -hmm. is uh, and so it's it's great to great fodder to talk about when in uh, in ambulatory clinic, but the interesting thing is you know we've now adapted this whole thing where we're doing like PCV thirteen at sixty five and then we'll do follow that with the pneumovax twenty three or the PPSV twenty three at one year except for certain populations but generally that's what we do, but then then just it came out that a CDC advisory committee on the immunization practices. They revisited the recommendations and they basically looked at it and said it didn't really reduce invasive pneumonia, which I found really interesting. So they didn't quite like reverse their decision on recommending it. They didn't say there was any harm to giving it. But then again, they said, really, we should consider shared decision making. Because apparently there's quite a bit of a healthcare cost to doing all these immunizations. And they really feel that it's the, um, because we do PCV13 in, in children, it's really those, those patients that we've seen the majority of benefit in terms of like herd immunity and decreasing like um, um, community burden of these diseases. And a lot of mm. the, non, uh, the non types that are covered are what probably a lot of people are having issues with. Did, did anyone else have any thoughts on that? Uh, Chris, um, I'm, I'm wondering if you could speak to the number needed to vaccinate. Um, I thought that was really interesting uh, that they mentioned that part of the kind of cost-benefit analysis um, in the CDC's decision-making was the fact that there needed to be, let's see, I have the summary. Yeah, I think the number needed to vaccinate to prevent was one 26, invasive pneumonia. 26,000 for invasive. Yeah. 26,000. <laughs> yeah. And uh, for comparison, I just pulled up um, a peer-reviewed article about HPV and vaccination and the number needed to vaccinate to prevent uh, a case of cervical cancer um, is 324. And the number needed to vaccinate to prevent an episode of genital warts is eight. Um, and I should cite my source, which is uh, Mark Brisson et al. And this is published in 2007, actually. So there may be more recent data. But as a comparison, I thought that that was really striking. Um, and I think I understand better now, knowing those numbers, why that uh, did not seem like it was a very effective regimen. Yeah. The other in the in the stuff you sent out to us, Chris, the other interesting thing I thought was that like so the the polysaccharide vaccine, the PPV twenty three, is like supposedly less immunogenic, but the the conjugated vaccines are protein and polysaccharide. They're supposed to be more potent vac vaccines, but this one, you know, the PCV thirteen for people over sixty five is what we're talking about, right? Immunocompetent adults over sixty five. It seems like it's not as important as we thought, but they did mention that there's a bunch more in the pipeline. So this all might change again in the near future because, like, some of the ones in the pipeline are conjugate vaccines, and they have a lot more serotypes, if that's the right word to use, than the PCV thirteen. I guess my big question is this, is this changing anyone's practice right now, especially those of us who practice outpatient? I think it should. <laughs> it hasn't changed ours yet, but it, but I will say that um, thinking about as flu season comes up and we're trying to Associate with patients to take immunizations. Um, certainly, we'd like to try to push them toward the ones that we know have the most efficacy. So it is interesting and something that could definitely change practice. Right. Yeah, because it, it seems like if you have your choice, like the PPV23 is what they're still recommending. Um, so you could give them that one. And uh, just, I mean, when this thing rolled out, the RVU, uh, I know because I was in clinic with Stuart at the time, and Stuart's, uh, <laughs> you know, Stuart knows all these things. Like, 
they I think it was like worth like three times as much as an office visit for a nurse in our clinic to give somebody oh, the God. PCV 13 vaccine. So talk about a medical reversal right now. Um, you know, it's interesting. So if anyone wants to watch the debate, apparently they recorded the whole debate of this advisory panel. It's on YouTube and it's an hour long. So it's 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 really like gripping to watch. <laughs> I will 100 percent not be watching it. M- must miss. <laughs> I'll be watching vape tricks. <laughs> John Wick 3 again, maybe. All right. So I'm going to give this a full stack and we're going to move on to Kimberly's really interesting articles. Does that sound okay to everyone? Yeah, let's sure. do it. Sounds good. All right, Kimberly, which one do you want to hit first? We have two interesting articles. One about <laughs> vacationing and one about imposter syndrome. <laughs> Oh, I think I want to start with imposter syndrome to fight off my imposter syndrome so I can get that past me. (laughs) All right. Well, tell Um, us about it. What's going on? Yeah. So this got my attention um, because it's now that we have Twitter and blogs, there's so many conversations that we're all having about imposter syndrome that we all thought was just us, but now we're finding out that it's not just us. And so, and um, I think it was the most recent JAMA um, this was an opinion piece in the a piece of my mind section, which is actually one of my favorite sections. And this was specifically looking not just at imposter syndrome, but but really kind of a root cause analysis of imposter syndrome. The authors are um, Samyukta Malangi and Reshma Jaxi. And Reshma, I believe, was on the Curbsiders during the Women in Medicine series and yes. was amazing. Friend of the pod. And so, yeah, <laughs> that was awesome. And so... Um, there was so much that I loved about this, but um, essentially for those who are not familiar with what imposter syndrome is, it's really this pattern of behavior where you think that you're going to get outed as a fraud, despite all this compelling evidence that says you're awesome. Um, You may be at the top of your class, valedictorian, a medical doctor, an associate professor, but you're just waiting for somebody to come and out you as an imposter. And it turns out that, um, this is actually thought to be more prevalent in women and also in underrepresented minorities. And the authors, they really kind of started to look at this as, well, let's just not just say that imposter syndrome is about you and how you feel about you and this need to just get a chuck under your chin and have one of your friends say, you go, girl, you're awesome. But instead to look at some systemic factors that could be playing into why so many people have imposter syndrome. And um, they talk a lot about structural issues that really cause us to be more likely to have imposter syndrome. Uh, For example, um, you know, if you're in a setting where you don't see a lot of um, people who look like you in leadership roles, um, if you're a woman and you don't see any division chiefs or a chair or a dean who looks like you, you may be unlikely to step up for some type of leadership role because you don't see yourself as a person who is a viable candidate for that. Um, it also talks about how, um, as, as women have, um, imposter syndrome and underrepresented minorities and all of you too, because it's thought that just about everybody experiences this at some point, but if imposter syndrome (laughs) gets to a really high level, it creates these barriers for us that, makes us not really see ourselves as, um, you know, if there's a potential opportunity that comes up, you don't put your name in the hat for it. Um, And I'll just say, because I like stories, I will tell you that um, I remember when I was um, called by my program director uh, to be asked to be chief resident, the first thing I thought was that I had done something terribly wrong. (laughs) I went to my chief, my, my program director's office and this conversation starts and I am panicked and I, they had to repeat the question a few times before I could answer. I agreed to be chief resident, was happy about it, was happy to tell my parents about it. But right as I became chief resident, I was a combined internal medicine pediatrics resident. And um, that August, I had to take the internal medicine certifying exam. And that October was the peds board. And I just spent an inordinate amount of time panicked about what it would look like if I failed the board as chief resident. Whereas my co-chief, it had not even occurred to him that he might not pass the board. Um, and so I spent a lot of time during that, that, um, that, those early months wishing I'd not agreed to be chief resident. Um, just wishing I hadn't agreed to it because I thought that this is going to be the big moment where everybody really finds out who I am. And so 
Um, what these authors talk about is instead of just, you know, tapping people on the shoulder and saying, hey, you're great, let's look at these things that cause people to identify themselves in certain ways. For example, um, you know, women traditionally, um, there's data that says that women may um, for put things in the form of a question when they have a statement so that they won't seem bossy or pushy. Um, you know, with this whole he, he for she movement, so many of us stand, being better bystanders, um, it's really a good opportunity for us to think about structurally um, the kind of culture that we build so that, hey, it's okay for a woman to say it how she means it without it being a question, unless she has a question. And then also um, um, looking at uh, with underrepresented minorities and um, looking at who's in leadership roles, who are we putting up for leadership roles, who is um, on the search committees. And I'll say that as somebody who has now been invited to be on search committees, even if the person doesn't get selected to be the dean or the chair, it does something to me internally to sit on a, on a search committee and see you know, a woman or an underrepresented minority sit across from us, review their CV, and seriously be considered for a high-level position. Um, because maybe if I'd seen more of that, it maybe never would have occurred to me that I would fail the boards, right? I didn't fail the boards. Um, maybe it would have, I just would have focused on being a great chief resident. Um, so I think it's, they talk a lot about just us finding ways with the whole system to try to make it not just this individual thing about you needing to know that you're awesome, but instead saying, hey, what, are, what, what narrative are we speaking to women, to URMs, to junior faculty um, that holds them back and makes them not want to step up. So I thought this was important. There have been some great um, women in medicine Twitter chats about this. Um, and I think one of the most exciting things happening on Twitter right now is how many people who aren't women um, are stepping in saying, you know what, I agree with you. And how many awesome bystanders we have um, who are looking in and saying, hey, you know, I realized that maybe I could have stood up for someone or I could have tried harder. So um, I found this incredibly important and just wonder what you all think about it. I just think one, one thing um, that came out of this article that they're discussing is how closely analogous they were talking about um, with burnout and mm -hmm. how um, this, this seems to be just closely entwined with the whole discussion of burnout. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a lot um, where they talk about um, the structural environment, meaning um, they talked about how much time we spend on the electronic medical record, how many, um, how women are, are sort of characterized in the workplace. Um, their term was how women are socialized. Um, and I think that all those things together, they kind of amplify these feelings of imposter syndrome and that burnout and imposter syndrome are this vicious cycle that kind of work together. And so, um, kind of trying to do things to tamp down burnout um, is one aspect that could help with imposter syndrome, but also the worse your imposter syndrome is, the more likely you are to be burnout, which is what it sounded like they were saying. It, this all just has that same, that the same theme that's come up so many times where they talk about wellness and burnout. We talked with Dr. Jagsey about sexual harassment and and in this article, I was kind of surprised to find it. I never thought imposter syndrome being a, like a systems issue, but it is. It's sort of like it needs systems level change. And you you highlighted some of them when you were talking about it. But that's that's one of the main ways that these are all related. It's it's not like don't just like tell the person that they need to internally change themselves. There's a lot of outward things that need to change for all these situations to get better. And there's a lot of overlap amongst them, as you as Chris was pointing out too. I think this grabbed me also because like you, I never thought about it as a systemic problem. So when I was reading the article, I admit that I was reading it skeptically. <laughs> I was thinking, um, okay, I kind of see what you're saying. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought about myself and I thought about times when I really felt truly panicked that this was going to be the day. <laughs> this is going to be the day. <laughs> um, it's all going to be over. Um, and, and I thought that, you know, the more examples that you see, um, for example, I, I admit that like listening to uh, the, the women in medicine session on curbsiders and listening to how Shreya 
curated that section, it, it, it actually allayed some of my concern about doing this today, right? Because I, I had an example. I, I listened to women talking and, um, and, and, and doing what we all can do, which is be smart and articulate and, and know what we're talking about, right? So wh why would I not be able to do that? Um, and this is a psychologically safe environment. I listen to y'all all the time. So <laughs> I, I hear how you cut up on each other. So <laughs> if I don't know, I can be like, I don't know. Um, and if I do know, I can say I do know, but that that is a systemic thing, right? And so we all have little parts to play in it. Some of it is just in your hospital maybe, but probably it's much, much bigger than that, right? It's like societal, it's what happens when we're other places. Um, a lot of us here have children. It's what we're saying to our kids and how and, and how we're interacting with people in other places. It's what we do with bias, right? Um, and so all those things together, I think, um, can change the way you see yourself. Um, if you see more awesome that looks like you out in the world. Now, I do think, um, I know quite a few men who also have experienced posture syndrome. And I will say that one in this article that I liked was one of, um, in one of the Twitter chats, someone said, um, I'd like you to find me someone. And I loosely quote, I'd like you to find me someone who has not experienced, um, imposter syndrome. <laughs> and so I, I imagine that um, even with your Y chromosomes, you all have probably had your share as well. Which is, I mean, it's a lovely sentiment. And, you know, as a proud owner of a Y chromosome, like it's, it's fine. <laughs> so, but I mean, but like, so a couple of things, sorry, not to go off on a rant, but so uh, the QI people will tell you that the product of systems, like systems are designed to perfectly create the product that they make, right? So, whatever system is in place is there to sort of reinforce and, and emphasize itself. And the same thing with power structures, they're, they're, their sole role is to sort of reinforce and codify and maintain power structures. So I think, you know, as said the white chromosome joke, haha, but also the system's not stacked against me the same way that it is against others. And I think part of it is the synergy between, it's a system that reinforces imposter syndrome in people that are already kind of disadvantaged and have lesser opportunities. And then, so it's sort of this dual strike against you. So it makes it doubly hard kind of right out the gate. And the system right now, I think is probably in part designed that way just because of um, a lot of historical precedents and stuff. So I think it's just a matter of sort of, um, like, as you say, sort of uprooting the power structures and, and sort of changing things on a systemic level. So I'm just saying what everybody else has already said. Sorry. No, that's, it's okay. I mean, I think it's, it, it, I think what they did in a very short paper is shake up how we're looking at imposter syndrome. And I think that's what really made this grab me. I mean, we've, we've heard so much about imposter syndrome in articles and in narratives and in papers and on Twitter. Um, but for someone to say, Hey, you know what, why don't we look at this as a systems issue? Um, let's, let's tie this to uh, who we are and burnout and wellness and all these other things that we're talking about. Um, and uh, I, it just made me think differently. And so anytime I run across something that makes me think differently, um, I, I definitely think it's important. So that's why I wanted to talk about it. That was so beautifully said, Dr. Manning. I was just like getting a little overclamped over here. Um, so thank you so much for, for reviewing this, this piece because I think it's so uh, important and relevant and it certainly resonated with me. Um, and I think something else that it, it brought to mind is it reminded me of, of all the messages that uh, that women and underrepresented minorities and any anyone with a marginalized identity, all these messages that we get, that they get um, about trying to make yourself fit in with a mainstream type of behavior or narrative or you know, that this kind of very insidious idea that if you just behave a certain way, then you will reap the benefits that the people who have more power than you already receive. Um, and I think, and I'm also, I mean, I, my head is kind of all over the place because this reminds me of so many different things, but I was thinking about the idea of internal versus external locus of control and how, you know, people who, who believe that, um, you know, that, that they are kind of in control of their narrative or whereas other people attribute, you know, external factors to their success or to their lack of success. And I, all of this is, is to say that it, it brought me to think about how often people who have, again, marginalized identities are told that the correct way to get what you want is to operate within a system and a, a style of communication that is very specific to, frankly, uh, white educated men. And um, again, that's just a systemic thing. Um, and 
when I think about this, I feel like women are especially are often criticized for softening you know, you can't see my air quotes over the internet, but you know, over the, over the audio, but softening themselves or making, um, statements that kind of, uh, that hedge their, um, their point a little bit, or that, uh, approach things from more kind of relational or communal, like, let's think about it this way, or I feel about this. And I think it's so interesting that women are discouraged from using that communication style, you know, and it's fascinating to me because what builds connection, in my opinion, and what builds the ability to have a more, um, a stronger, I suppose, internal locus of control, a stronger sense of one's own worth and, you know, ability to succeed, it comes from having emotional support. And it comes from having a sense of community and relational, um, you know, well-being. And from, as you said, like, you can't be what you can't see. And if we're not communicating with people in a way that meets them where they're at, uh, you know, how can we expect them to feel successful, to feel empowered, to feel like they can achieve what they want to achieve. So to me, I think some of this, the missing piece to this is also that we need to stop telling marginalized people with marginalized identities that, oh, well, you need to, you need to cut it out. You know, you need to talk like you're the, the, you're the corporate, you know, corner office guy, like that's going to get you what you want. Why aren't we encouraging people who have historically had power to think about things from a more relational approach, a more communal approach? You know, and again, it has to do with the fact that we put the onus on people who are marginalized to fit with the larger hierarchy rather than expecting the system, the structure to accommodate more people. So sorry, I was a bit rambly, but um, I just thought this was such an important piece. I'm so glad you, you discussed it. I'll just mention one last thing because I know we need to move off of this, but um, I, I'm, I'm generally an optimist about most things and a bit of a Pollyanna. Some people are probably too young to know who Pollyanna is. Google it. But um, um, these are exciting times, though, don't you think? Like when you think about like Twitter, when you think about that somebody is going to log on to this podcast and hear this conversation. Um, you know, one of the things I have found out, I've been out of medical school since 1996, and I spent about two to three years trying very hard to assimilate um, into being somebody other than who I was, which is um, a black girl from Inglewood, California, who went to a historically black college and a historically black medical school, and then who landed in a, in a majority institution who said, oh, I'm going to try to be a certain thing. It was exhausting. Um, but what I quickly found out was when I started being my authentic self, some really neat things happened. It permitted other people to be authentic. Um, I did a much better job. Um, yes, I speak standard English, but you know, if I'm relaxed and I'm talking to somebody um, who's one of my patients and I and we speak the same dialect, I will happily do that and I don't care who's there. Um, and what it does is it permits other people to be who they are as well. So I just love all the psychologically safe environments like podcasts and Twitter that are being created to let people be more authentic. And I think that will be a, one of the systemic factors that ends up letting people not just become leaders, but become leaders and still be their authentic selves. Like I can be a leader and I can be like, girl, let me tell you this. What <laughs> <happened>. <laughs> so how cool would it be to have Absolutely. your like Dean start off a meeting and be like, honey, let me tell you. <laughs> so um, I'm just excited to see people being more of themselves, you know? Exactly. So. All right, Kimberly. Um, thank can you, yeah. you, I'm going to have to ask you, you're going to have to give us a hotcakes for this article. We don't have to oh, do this. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, because it made me think so much, I think you. I think the amount of hotcakes I can give you is five, right? I well, no, six. Six is a full six? stack. Six? No? I mean, or you can give it a I double mean, stack. Do you see, a double do you stack. see what I've been saying? <laughs> no, I know. I know. It's not a standardized approach. Yeah. I suggested another rating system on Twitter, but Paul didn't like it. There was an episode where there were like heart-shaped stacks, and I was down with the heart-shaped stacks. <laughs> So I'm going to have a stack of six, Rudy Tootie, fresh and fruity. <laughs> um, yeah. And maybe with like some kind of blueberries on top because I like blueberries. Love it. <laughs> I think all this right. article is, is, it's definitely the highest rated article in, in all, all of hotcakes. I mean, who could know? Of all time. <laughs> I don't need to do any statistics. <laughs> well, we might, we might for this next one. I mean, do you, so, so the second article you picked out for us. Is actually one that's very interesting, and it's actually sort of a, a, a quick take on another article. Is that correct? Yes, it's. I mean, I think 
think this is a good segue to what we were talking about because again, all these conversations about wellness and us, you know, taking good care of ourselves and everything. And so this was near and dear to my heart. This got my attention because it was like a quick uptake in JAMA about vacationing more often reduces metabolic syndrome risk. Um, (laughs) And I will say to you, as somebody who is um, one of the folks that has gotten the email that says you need to lose, use it or lose it, take your vacation. Um, this got my attention. And because I'm a nerdy internist, um, the fact that they're actually looking at um, metabolic syndrome, which is um, near, near our hearts, no pun intended, uh, um, is also, I thought, really interesting. And so this paper was in the Journal of, I think, Psychology and Health. And um, basically, they, it was a small study, I'll admit. It was only 63 people in the study. It was um, people who work full-time. The majority of the um, enrollees were women. And um, and what they looked at was, um, uh, it was a retrospective study that looked at over a 12-month period how much these individuals who were eligible for paid time off, how often they took vacation, what kinds of vacations they took, and then they did some measurements to see whether or not you had metabolic syndrome or metabolic uh, symptoms, they called it. And um, I I think sort of without um, belaboring it too much, I'll say spoiler alert, um, vacation (laughs) reduces metabolic syndrome, but um, What they found out is that uh, on average, these individuals took 14 days of vacation. um, And um, I think they took five different vacations. And they found that with every additional vacation that you took, um, your metabolic symptoms and metabolic syndrome risk went down. And um, one part that did strike me in this study, though, was that one of the things that reduced risk was if you did a staycation instead of <laughs> like a leave your house vacation. And I said, you know what? I don't know who these people are <laughs> um, who stayed home. I don't know what they were doing at home. Um, but uh, yeah, that was one of the things there, too. And I think there, there's it's a small study. It's retrospective. Um, it was mostly in one state. It was only 63 people, predominantly white women. Um, so there, there may be some things that may not be identical to me in this study, but um, I do think the reason that they even did the study is because um, of the 74% of you know American workers who have. Um, um, I'm sorry, of the American workers who have paid time off, um, I think there's like, no, I'm sorry, of the Americans who work, 74% are eligible for paid time off. And then only half of them, they only take about half of it. Um, And I have fallen into that category. I hope that made sense. That probably sounded confusing. Um, But but I like things that I can just relate to my real life. Um, and, um, you know, for us, we're so passionate about our work. I love the students. I love the, the medical, um, the patients, um, and all of it. And, and I'll like take a Friday and go somewhere for a weekend. But as far as dedicating true vacation where I'm unplugged, um, I, I haven't done such a good job of that. And I've definitely lost vacation days before I was, I was also wondering if these people who took 14 days a vacation, if that was all they had allocated them, um, my suspicion is they might have had more because I get more than 14 days of vacation. Um, I don't know if y'all do, <laughs> but um, I don't know that I always take all of them. But now I want to reduce my my risk of heart disease and metabolic mm-hmm. syndrome. Mm-hmm. And so, hey, maybe I just need to take me some more vacations and more of them. Like the more you take, the um, the more the risk goes down. So that's kind of like the the overview on it. Um, the the full paper is is actually kind of long, but I think that's the gist of it. <laughs> and before any of the statistics people get on us, so Kimberly <laughs> did say it's a retrospective study, and these are associations. Yeah. So I just want to make yeah. sure that we, everyone's clear on that. But I'm going to take it because um, actually I'm, I'm going to show this to my wife because she she always keeps on. And yelling at me for not taking enough vacations, and so I think she has has something going for that. And the vacation in this, it, it was if it's defined as greater than one day of paid time off. So when I, when I was in a different job uh, recently, uh, outpatient job at Cashlack, I 
we had this 980 schedule where you work like nine, 10 hour days and then you get the 10th day off. So basically like you basically have two, three day weekends every month. And I can tell you, I mean, like you, you're going to work 10, like the extra hour was like, you barely felt it because you're just like working all the time. Days you work, you work a lot, right? So uh, having two, three day weekends a month, it does really does wonders for your soul. And you might even you might even start a podcast on such a schedule. <laughs> That's literally the, when I started the podcast. When like that that I was working that schedule, and I was like, oh, I, got, I have a lot more time. Uh, I need to fill this somehow. Um, but it, I think it's I think it's good. Uh, I think it's good to take your take your vacation. I mean, it seems. I mean, to, to some degree, like this seems silly, right? Somebody would look at this and say, "Of course, you should take your vacation." Um, but you know, there there are a lot of people whose jobs sort of feel like ministry, and they they go and they do it and they do it and they do it. I mean, I was in Africa with my family, and I was typing up something into our ACGME like <laughs> um, thing that I wanted to edit because it was on my mind and I thought of how I wanted to word it. And I am like, why am I sitting in Zimbabwe on a safari typing into ACGME when I only get 20 minutes of, of web time, you know? Um, so I, I think I think th- just this making me think about um, how I vacation, how, how much I um, really unplug from everything and allow it to happen. Um, what I was, I just mentioned that I was in Africa over the summer since 1996. Um, that was my first vacation that lasted more than seven days. I had never taken a vacation as an adult that lasted more than seven days. Now I've taken a lot of little short vacations, but I kept telling myself that I didn't need, um, much more vacation that I'm a kind of person who feels anxious if I'm away from home too long. So I learned that, um, one, I was going to the wrong places. Um, and also that, um, I was increasing my risk of metabolic syndrome, man. (laughs) (laughs) So Kimberly, how many hotcakes are we, are are we giving this, this article? Um, I, I'm going to give this one, um, no Rudy Tootie fresh and fruity. Um, but I will give it like three hot cakes, but, th- but hot ones, maybe with a little banana slice in it. Excellent. <laughs> Paul looks horrified. I just, I, I just mean, love it. Listen real quick, just the original paper, like some things don't require a study like the, in the paper, like interviewed on a scale of like one to five, how do you have vacations? And they're like, people are favorable towards vacations. They seem to like them. <laughs> like it's like a good strong work. You really crack the case wide open. <laughs> All right, Kimberly, I'm going to ask you for some of your, your takeaways from our discussion today, and then I'm going to let you plug whatever you want to plug in terms of blog, social media, or anything else. Oh, my. Um, I, I guess my, my takeaways um, are uh, regarding imposter syndrome is that uh, it's super common. It's not just you, um, and it is likely much bigger than you and a part of the system. Be a better bystander. Um, don't force people into uh, certain um, behaviors that, that you know society has dictated for them. And um, try to be your authentic self because maybe it will permit somebody else to be their authentic selves. And then take your vacation. Um, take it and, um, take frequent vacations and, and plan them and really think carefully and be okay. If you do take a staycation, send one of those emails that says I'm out of the office so that you can actually take a real staycation. I love, I love the head shakes that I'm getting on that part. (laughs) So that's it. And let me see, um, to, to plug anything, um, you know, I, I think that if there's anybody listening to, uh, this podcast who does not, um, have a Twitter account and who is not actively on Twitter. I mean, this sounds probably silly, um, but you're just missing so much. You can learn a lot. Um, you can, if you are in medicine, med Twitter, I'm trying to encourage all of our residents and faculty to get an account uh, so that you can just see all of the amazing learning opportunities that are happening there. I'm just learning so, so much on Twitter. So that's my big plug. It's not even a shameless personal plug. Well, you can you follow so me if you want, but you don't have to. And what is your Twitter <laughs> handle? At Grady Doctor. I think everyone should follow me. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> I suppose we had to. Get your show notes at curbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We 
are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to, oh, I guess that's me. Uh, I'm one of the producers for this episode. Um, And to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Sarah Roberts. And before I sign off, I I need to add Stuart to that because he he does the music for the show. I don't know why I like never put that in there, but like that, I feel like that's one of the things that people like about the show is the music that he... He like produced that on an iPad, so uh, we'll we'll put that in there for future uh, outros. So until next time, I've been Matthew Frank Watto. I'm Chris the Chew Manchu, and I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Okay. Hey, Paul, how's it going? <laughs> Great, Did man. I sound so too tired there? I'm yeah, not you tired. S- you uh, sound like a broken man. <laughs> Let's take that again. Let's Great. That's, that that's again. our outro recording. Good. <laughs>